Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, lovely divers. Welcome to episode 72 of the Diving In podcast. We are recording this conversation on unceded Wachakmunga land in Western Australia, and we pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land. Today, we thought it might be fun if we each read some books that we're actually a bit embarrassed to confess that we've never read. (laughs) We all have these books. We do. We all (laughs) And in fact, I had so many that I didn't even know where to begin. <laughs> I wonder if it's because a lot of my friends assume that I've read books. Yeah. Like, so a lot of people will say, oh, how did you find this one and this one? And I think, I haven't read them all. <laughs> and the backlist yeah, that I haven't backlist. read. It's the backlist. Know, yeah. And I do think one of my little aims in life is to be able to eventually say that I'm well read. I, you know, I, you are well. Well, well I well, consider you, you know, extremely well read. You know, that's a that's a spectrum, I guess. <laughs> and I think that if you're going to be in that category, you do need to have read the books that are in the canon. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I'm still a long way. From, but a need from there. is a difficult word. I, yeah, you know, I, yeah, you know, yeah. You don't course. need to, but yes, I, I agree. Yeah. And, 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 it, and and I do occasionally just nod. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when people say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, mention a book, or, yeah. I just nod. Yeah. I don't yeah. confirm nor deny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just, yes, keep keep silent sometimes. There are literally hundreds of books that experts would include in the canon. Yes. <laughs> and I certainly have read, you know, probably most of them. And, and many of them I probably never will read, if I'm really mm. honest. Some of them I really don't even want to read. No. And I do occasionally come across funny articles or... You've, often find books in bookstores which purport to help you talk about books that you've never read <laughs> yes. so that people won't be able to tell. Yes. And I sort of imagine they give you a thumbnail sketch of the key features of the book, which is pretty funny, like Pride and Prejudice, yes. <laughs> you know, young woman, <laughs> uh, young gentleman moves to the area. <laughs> yes. Her There's mother a- thinks that, that that will throw them into the path of other young men. <laughs> The formula. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? Because I also think there was a period, and I can't even think when it was, where there would be references in novels that you go, oh, that's, like like we occasionally say, well, that's a Middlemarch reference. But that's not necessary anymore. No. So this idea that you have to be well-read so that you pick up the little references or the, you know, that just just doesn't matter, I mean, if you're not, if you haven't read the book, it'll just go over your head. Yeah. Which, and that doesn't matter. No. But it is quite funny. So today, I think Lou and I are going to each talk about an author that we've never read, and then we're each going to just talk about a book that we've never read. So we might have read the author, but we won't have read the particular book. Yes. Yes. So what's your first one, Lou? Well, my first one, to my great shame, (laughs) is The Remains of the Day. Oh, yes. uh, Which is the 1989 book of Kasuo Ishiguro. It was his third novel, uh, written when he was 35 years old. And the narrator and principal focus of this book is the butler and Mr. Stevens. Some of you may have seen the movie, the Merchant Ivory movie. I mm-hmm. think Anthony Hopkins plays Mr. Stevens. And he's the butler in, an, in a stately English home. And when I say home, I mean, you know, one of those grander sort of aristocratic estates, in this case, Darlington Hall. And when we meet Mr. Stevens, he's in the uh, later years of what he tells us is a distinguished sort of 34-year career in service. Lord Darlington has now sold Darlington Hall to an American, a Mr Faraday, and he's kept Mr Stevens on with a much contracted number of staff. And, you know, you get the sense that although the new owner, Mr Faraday, is a man of means from the new world, the glory days of the grand estates are over and they're beginning to dwindle and decay. So it's 1956. Post-World War II. Post-World War II. And we've talked a lot about this period Mm -hmm. in Britain, in Britain elsewhere, of course, as well. So 
Mr Stevens is having to make adjustments and in doing so, he's reflecting back on his life, his years at Darlington Hall, which he shares with us, um, his relationship with Lord Darlington, with Lord Darlington's visitors and with the staff he managed. So that's kind of it, it in a nutshell. Mr Stevens is this sort of exquisite portrait uh, in propriety, calculated, measured, restrained propriety. You know, his speech, his manners, his posture, everything according to his understanding and outlook of what great service entails. He's struggling a bit with the new order, Mr Faraday's American ways, Uh, And the book is largely Stephen's monologue with himself or with the reader and his recollection of conversations he's had with others. So there's sort of quite a bit of dialogue. And the tone of the narrative starts out really pompous. I'm going to talk a bit later about how long this book will stand the test of time. You know, he's obviously got a lot of pride in his position. He's very confident about the standard of his service and the household that he expertly runs. But the tone begins to shift. You know, you don't notice the pomposity as much and the formality of the tone. And I I can't work out whether the language does actually change as it goes on and he he loosens and relaxes a bit more, but you certainly feel that he is. And he's as he observes that times have changed, he he just very superficially begins to question some of his decisions and and also some of his memories. So there's an unreliability there as well. Mm. The book opens with Mr. Stevens planning a trip away, a week away. Mr. Faraday is going away for six weeks. So he says, Mr. Stevens, you know, you need to go off. You need to go and have a rest. You can use the car. I'll pay for the gas. So Stevens decides to head to the West Country. Um, That's the southwest leg of England. I don't know if it's still called the West Country. It certainly used to be, um, sort of Dorset, Devon, Cornwall. And he's going to meet up with a Miss Kenton, who was previously the housekeeper of Darlington Hall for 20 years. And she's corresponded with him over the years, but not in the last five to seven years, other than Christmas cards. And she had left uh, service after 20 years to, to get married. The early relationship between Mr. Stevens and Miss Kenton during her time at Darlington Hall is just so expertly drawn in the book. And that to me was sort of the genius, but also the irony of Ishiguro's writing. You're only privy to a sort of a handful of memories between Stevens and Kenton, and yet you gain a complete oh, understanding yeah. and weight. Wow of their relationship. So even though you're only privy to Stephen's memory, it's from what he doesn't tell you, what he's incapable of telling you actually, that you learn the true picture. Mm -hmm. So it's in those negative, it's, you know, it's superb. He is so trapped, Stephen's, in his sort of constructed world of propriety that he's, I don't know if he's failing to observe what's really happening or if he's willfully blind to what's really happening. And it's also true of his relationship with Lord Darlington. He's so convinced that he works for, you know, a man of great character and morals, and he's so impressed by all the distinguished men and important men that come and go at the house that he fails to see that Darlington is anti-Semitic and he's being manipulated by Nazi supervisors because, of course, the period, the main period of his service is in the 40s. And some readers might forgive Stevens or they might prefer a narrative that it's not his place to question his master, to intervene, to polite, you know, to suggest a different point of view. But, the, it, you know, for me, the fact remains that questioning the morality of Lord Darlington, you know, would be to question his own loyalty and service and, and his proximity to greatness. So he, he doesn't want to question Darlington because no. it, it, it's Darlington's greatness is fundamental to him. So the book ultimately isn't about sort of stately homes and butlers. It's about relationships. Mm. And I guess ultimately what we lose when we hesitate. It is such a painful book yeah. at times. And Ishiguro gets to the heart of it without 
any fuss at all. You know, as I said before, it's more about what isn't said than what is said. The other relationship, there's the housekeeper Kenton, which is sort of the principal relationship. There's the relationship with Lord Darlington. But then there's this very sort of small vignette in the book about Stephen's father. Stephen's father had also been a much lauded butler of a great house. Uh, So, of course, Stephen's has followed in his father's footsteps and he's very proud of that. And you'd think that it might be a source of great connection between them. But in his retirement years, Stephen's father comes to Darlington Hall as an under-butler. And the relationship that Ishiguro has painted between father and son is so distant and so painful. It's just exquisite. It's an exquisite, it's exquisite book. He's a really talented writer. He won the Booker Prize, the Man Booker Prize for this book. And then later in 2017, which isn't that long ago, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. But there are a couple of things I want to say about it. I don't know whether this book will truly last the test of time. As I say, it's about relationships. It written in 89, 35 years ago. And the language of relationships obviously, you know, is universal. But Stephen's language is so formal. You know, it's the dialogue of a butler in a great home. I just don't know how accessible it's going to be down the track. Yeah, whether another next generation will be. Yeah, and and will not even relate Mm. to the role. Yeah. And and there are sort of a few endless musings on what it means to be a great butler and what it means to be in service. And, I, I yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think ultimately it could be a little bit unrelatable. And the other thing I want to, to mention is if you listen to your books rather than read a hard copy, then the narrator of the audiobook is the actor Dominic West. Oh, wow. Yeah, so people will know him from The Wire, The Affair, and recently, of course, Prince Charles and The Crown. I've listened to about, I've read the hard copy, and then I listened to about a third of it on audio. And Dominic West is so respectful of the author. He reads the book as a narrator, not as an actor. And I think there's a real difference. He shows sort of restraint which, of course, reflects the tone yeah. of the book as well. Yeah. And, I, and I want to mention this because in a recent episode, I reviewed Anne Patchett's recent book, Tom Lake. Yeah. And after I'd uh, reviewed it, a friend mentioned to me that she had listened to the audio, not, not read yeah. the hard copy, and that the narrator was Meryl Streep. So mm-hmm. I then downloaded it because right. I wanted to hear Meryl Streep. I was curious. Yeah. And although I love Meryl, I hated her narration of Tom Lake. And I know this is going to, people will just, a lot of people will disagree with me because she doesn't read it. She acts it. Yes, okay. And it, for me personally, it really distracted from the book. Yeah, okay. So Dominic, he doesn't do that. He's an agent for the author's words. You know, I I know I'm a bit clumsily describing the clumsy way. Because there's a difference between putting on a voice in a dialogue piece and then reading the rest the way the novel is presented. Well, she's performing it. And, of course, in Tom Lake, she's the mother, you know, she's, the mother is the narrator and she's talking about her relationship with her daughters and her past relationships with people. So there is dialogue, but it's mostly what she's telling us in her head about her life. And to me, it feels like a real performance. And I kept hearing Meryl. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't hear. Mm. Now, I I might be different if I just listened to the audio as opposed to having read the book first. Yeah. But I could really lose myself in the book and the story and the different characters. And as I'm reading one character, I'm thinking of another character. I couldn't do that with Meryl because it was just Meryl Streep doing an amazing performance. And I'm like, it wasn't, I'm not, you know, it's amazing. Of course, yeah. Um, Whereas Dominic West almost flatly just reads yep. it. In a beautiful accent. Yeah, yeah and it, it just, it's quite interesting. I mean, I appreciate the books are very different. Yeah. Like, They're uh, different experiences, though, aren't yeah. they, listening yeah. to the book and reading it. And I know some people have the contrary view. They, I mean, for example, I haven't listened to Tom Hanks read Anne Patchett's The Dutch House. So it'd be interesting because he does do quite yeah. a few audio. Yeah. I started it, but I don't think I finished it. Yeah. I liked the way he did it I, yeah. from memory. It was a while ago. So I'd really be interested to mm. hear what people have yeah. to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What's your... Um, That was great, Lou. I read Romance of the Day so long ago and I've seen the movie and I feel like my memory is overlaid with the movies. I actually Mm. think I might read it again. Yeah. Um, Well, both my books, they are very successful, strong movies as well. 
And I think that does yeah, just have a relationship with people. You sort of remember, when yeah. you're thinking about it, you remember the movie maybe more than the book. So yeah. I, might, I might read that one again. The way I chose my two books today, it wasn't very scientific. I just looked in my bookcases and I've got so many unread books in there and I chose one classic and one yes. slightly more recent book where I had the physical copy sitting mm. waiting. My first book is the slightly newer book, uh, Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami and translated by Jay Rubin. It was written in 1987. Oh, so, so it's, time. it's getting on in years actually, mm. but it's been sitting on my shelf since about 2016, I think. And I've never picked it up. And, you know, when I'm sort of standing there thinking, what will I read next? I never reach for it because I, I think I, I thought that I wouldn't like it. And to some extent, I was right. <laughs> but I am glad that I yes. have read it now. There's no question that Murakami writes beautifully. He is a beautiful writer. And I think probably also Jay Rubin, the translator, is equally talented because the, mm. the English translation is just superb. But there were several things about this book that really grated on me. So it's probably going to be a slightly controversial review. We for love me. that. We love that. <laughs> and of course, I don't really mind expressing a controversial view with something like this because Haruki Murakami does not need anything from me. He's um, sold millions of books and he, he's got millions of fans. So what I say is not going to be a drop in the ocean to him. I think the first thing to note is the novel literally has nothing to do with a Norwegian wood or Norway. The Beatles? Anything to do with the, the Beatles? Beatles? It's the Beatles oh. song. Oh, okay. It is. Oh, wow. The character loved the Beatles song. Wow. Which is an interesting thing to do. Yes. To, to name a whole book that's set in Tokyo about a relationship. Wow. After a Beatles song. So the story opens with the narrator, Toru Watanabe, telling the story of his first love, Naoko. And Naoko had been his best friend, Kazuki's girlfriend, uh, when they oh. were at school. And so Toru is recounting this story from 18 years earlier, back when he was a university student in Tokyo. And although the book was written in 1987, it is largely set in 1968-69 when Toro is living in a, this revolting university college with these horrible dirty dormitories oh. and scaly people and their shared dormitories and you get who you get and oh, revolting. And he runs into Naoko uh, when he's out and about, who he hasn't seen since school, so for yeah. many months. And the three friends used to hang out together a lot. They were a very tight group. And he runs into her and he starts to spend a lot of time with her and they do a lot of walking around Tokyo. They hang out together almost exclusively. Toru doesn't really have any other friendships at the time. And he falls in love with Naoko. But it becomes apparent that all is not well with mm. Naoko. Oh, Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> this is very much a character-driven novel rather mm. than a very plot-driven novel, which I usually I usually love yes. character-driven novels. But in this case, I have to say I ended up in the middle of the novel, sort of hate reading it. <laughs> yeah, okay. For a patch there. I just, oh, my God, I just had to really force myself. I just really hated it. And then I started to enjoy it again uh, for the final third. I certainly enjoyed it a bit more. And I thought maybe I was being a bit harsh. But one thing I am sure is I probably won't read another Murakami novel, which is quite wow. freeing, yes, quite freeing because there are so many other great books to read. Was it because you didn't like the character? I'll, I'll okay. sort of okay. go through a few yeah. of my beefs with it. So yeah. while most of Toru's story is about his love for the beautiful but deeply troubled Naoko, he does tell us a little bit about a couple of other friendships. There's a young woman named Midori who he becomes entangled with. And there's a guy named Nagasawa who's a real player with yeah. women and who sort of lures Toro into the player lifestyle a little bit. Yes. And I would say probably the best way to describe this book is to categorise it as a tragedy. It's a coming-of-age story. Yes. And it's a recounting of what is left behind when someone inexplicably and unexpectedly takes their own life. And there are several suicides in it, and it is a bit bleak, so a warning about that. 
From about the halfway point, there is a lot of sex in this book and it's quite explicit sex. Uh, And I do have a secret suspicion that the sex is one of the things that accounts for some of this book's popularity, but that that might be Yeah, okay. But on the subject of sex, I have, (laughs) this is one of my beefs, it's a tiny beef, but I have decided that any author who writes a sex scene and uses the word panties (laughs) should be placed on a register. (laughs) Seriously. Just no. No panties. Just no. Um, Do you think it's a particularly 1980s well, word? It, uh, look, it might have been the translator. Yeah, I think it might have. Or, or, or I don't know. I, I think it might be the era. Uh, it just, I can't, it's just such an ick <laughs> that I always have to put the book down for a moment and just sort of read. <laughs> I think we could call it the ick register and then everyone would just be forewarned because it's just so bad. I think we just call the episode panties, yeah, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! I just don't even want to put the word out no, there, though. No, I just yeah, want to ban. Yeah, that I, word. I agree. That's just fabulous, Ginny. Oh my god! I, you know, I was waiting for this. <laughs> this waiting thing you were yeah, gonna... no, no, but this is how petty I am today. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to own it. Okay, this oh, book, this book brilliant. did great on me, as just you can brilliant. tell. Yes. Uh, so. Mm. There's another story that's told in this book on the subject of sex. Yeah. There's a story in here that's told by a character about a mature female piano teacher yeah. being seduced by a rapacious teenage girl mm. that she was teaching the piano to. Mm. And it is such a gross, revolting story. Yeah. It has not aged well. No. Because the young teenage girl is portrayed as this sort of seductress. Yeah. And she's, I think, 13 or 14. Oh, really? Yeah. So that the way the story's written, sort of towards the end of the book, it really seemed to me to be a scaly man indulging in his lesbian sex fantasies. Yes, yes. That, that sounds that well observed. That was the only way I could yes. look at yeah. it. And I just thought this is so revolting and it's, yeah. it's not erotic, it's just revolting and... Yeah. It has not aged well. There's another really odd thing about this book, which is this depiction of the sanatorium Mm. that Naoko goes to for a very long time to heal after her breakdown. Yes. And the whole thing was just completely nonsensical and fanciful to me. I may well be wrong and these sort of sanatoriums may well have existed in the 60s, but in this particular story... Naoko goes to this this beautiful farm and everybody's sort of there's a lot of independence and little apartments and you it's a it's a bit like a um kibbutz, it, yes. it reminded me yes. of. But a non-qualified patient, a patient of the psychiatrists at the at the unit yes. is assigned to her to sort of be her buddy. Like a mentor or something. But is very involved and intrusive and she's got no qualifications and she herself is a patient Mm. and has riddled with issues. Yeah. And she lives with this, lives with Naoko in this little apartment, shares a bedroom with her, is completely involved in all her treatment and her issues and it just seemed contrary to anything that any professional psychiatrist would recommend as the way to treat someone who's had breakdown. So I just thought that was extremely odd. And it was all very odd the way it, it just didn't make sense. It seemed like a very expensive place to go and there was no, it, never any mention of the money and how she was affording this. And it was all yeah. very odd. Um, and the other thing I will say about it, the final negative thing, is that I just really didn't like the way Murakami depicted women in yes. the story. He seemed very misogynistic to me, which might be a sign of the times. Toro is portrayed as this very passive young man and all the young women sort of are throwing themselves at him, mm. you know, in a sexual way. And it just seemed to me to be very much in the service of the male gaze. Yes. It's quite a bleak book. It's quite sad. You sort of know how it's going to end. It's got these, you know, these various quirky things. And there's probably other things that I haven't mentioned. <laughs> there's a limit to how much negativity mm. I can bring. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't a great fan and I know that'll be controversial. No, that's an excellent Norwegian review. Wood, Haruki Murakami. <laughs> you know, see, what, what, what that makes me want to do is to read another Murakami. Yes. And to see if that is... Yeah, do. Whether Please he do. Is an we'll author have a conversation. ...who 
the Diving In podcast might want to cancel. <laughs> We've already put him on our ick register. <laughs> oh, no, yes, that's a much better way. I don't like the word cancel. We can have an ick register. In fact, an episode of books that haven't aged well yeah. is a, is a, a you know, great idea. Yeah, right, is, a, is a good place. idea. Yes. Um, no, that's an excellent review. But, yeah, I'd love you to read one and see because you might say, no, no, that must have been a one-off or, yes. you know, you might find some things that are similar. Just the way he writes about women. Ugh. And you wonder if he's grown as an author. Because when did he write that? In he 87? was about 38 when yes. he wrote this. I think he's very about similar 75 to now. Yes. and yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Mm. So interesting. What was your other book? Well, my next one is a novella. So it's going to be a very, very short review. Uh, and it is Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote. I've read Capote before in Cold Blood and essays and various other pieces, but I haven't read Breakfast of, at, at Tiffany's. And probably even more shocking from a popular culture point of view, I haven't even seen the iconic movie with Audrey Hepburn. I've never seen it. I've seen it, but I've never read the book. Mm. I'm the same as you, mm. you know, never having read the book. So as you would expect from Capote, there's a grittiness to the novella uh, and it has very strong autobiographical qualities, which I'll mention a bit later. It's set in New York in the 1940s while sort of World War II is going on elsewhere and it feels like old New York. You know, New York feels omnipresent in the, in the novella. The narrator is a young and unnamed writer who initially spends his days in his brownstone apartment. Uh, and we know that Capote lived in a brownstone in Brooklyn Heights. You know, being a writer at home all day, it gives him the opportunity to watch the goings-on outside, but also particularly his fellow tenants at the brownstone. And he becomes very preoccupied by one in particular, uh, a beautiful and seemingly very sociable girl whom he watches but sees one night downstairs in the foyer of, of their building uh, and she appears to come and go at all times of the day and night and that girl is the eponymous Holly Golightly and this is the first of the larger than life names of course the author doesn't have a name which is very deliberate the writer sorry this is the first of the larger than life names that Capote gives characters in the novella you know we've talked about this yeah. before with other books a period passes and one night, the writer finds Holly outside his bedroom uh, window on the fire escape looking in. And possibly she's been there for a while. Uh, and she says, can I come into your room and hide? And she's banging on the window. And, of course, this is a you know, much welcome opportunity for him to spend time with her. And they chat and she crawls into his bed to go to sleep. You know, there's a, a very quickly growing, comfortable relationship between them partly because she says you remind me of my brother Fred who's away in the war and she decides to call him Fred from now on that's right Holly becomes upset talking about her brother and when the writer presses her she decides to leave so Golightly is something of an enigma she doesn't want to share much of her real self she seems to prefer sort of superficial relationships She's always looking forward, not back. And much later in the book, the narrator, the writer, meets a man who is searching for Holly from her past, and that adds some context to this sort of pathology that she has. Uh, so Holly has lots of parties in her apartment, um, mostly with men. You know, there's agents there, actors, diplomats, models, and they've all got these great names, these sort of big, vivid names. There's O.J. Berman, there's Rusty Trawler, Mag Wildwood, and Jose Yabara Yeager as a diplomat from Brazil. I should add, the novella was first published in 1958. It was initially intended for Harper's Bazaar, which was a magazine that Capote published quite a few of his um, pieces in. They pulled out because of their concerns with the character of Holly Golightly. So Random House took it up and then it was serialised in a Squire magazine and Capote said he would never give anything to Harper's Bazaar ever again. And the concerns related to, I suppose the meta-suggestion was, and one shared by the brownstone landlady, was that she was being paid for sex. But it's never explicitly said and, you know, the reader can make their own mind up. And I think when Truman Capote was questioned about it, he described her as an American geisha. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. She was, you know, a companion for, mm. for many men. We do know that Holly is paid to make weekly visits to a mafia boss who's in Sing Sing in the prison in New York, notorious for ex- ex- executions. And he's got a, a fabulous soprano-worthy name, Sally Tomato. <laughs> fabulous. I'm not going to share the details of the storyline there because it's such a short book. The storyline is quite amusing, but there's sort of serious consequences there. In fact, there are several amusing moments in the book and and the plot is sometimes quite far-fetched as well. I think Truman Capote possibly intended to create this sort of contrast between this very plain, uneventful life of this young, naive author writer and Holly Golightly's, you know, life which seems to be extremely vivid and melodramatic and, you know, as I said, far-fetched. That's, I think, being generous to him. Yeah, okay. At times I just thought it was a bit, it was a little bit slapstick. Oh, okay. And yet that's sort of contrasted with what is this, for me, just this incredibly inherent sadness Mm. and pathos in the book, you know, and for me, his, Capote's genius is his ability to create this extremely complete and complex character, a little bit like the first book that I talked about, in such a short novella. So again, it's, it's what he doesn't tell us about her and he trusts the reader to read between the lines and that's exactly what Ishiguro does oh. in Remains of the Day. So it was fascinating to have chosen these two books that seemed world apart and yet... They're both sort of full of that artifice and pathos. I love that. Yeah, so it was interesting. I do recommend that you read uh, a little bit about Truman Capote's early life and also about his mother because they are both sort of significant inspirations, I think, for this book. You know, I'm just going to leave it because I'm not going to go into the plot at all because it's just so easy to give it away. But, you know, you do follow Holly through some of the mishaps with some of these men and the melodrama that sort of follows her and eventually she leaves New York and that's all I'm going to say. Okay. What about you? I've never read any Capote and, I mean, so I could have easily chosen one of his actually. So uh, it just reminded me, I really want to read that. Mm. That that sounds so good, Lou. My second one is Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. I've always thought that this is one of those books that anyone who's well-read will have read, particularly (laughs) as a child. Often there's children's versions, I think. You know, it's definitely part of the canon. Yes, yes. (laughs) And I have read The Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde a few times and I've seen it performed in plays and things. And I think that book is, the Jekyll and Hyde is just pure genius and it's so ahead of its time. Uh, so I was confident that I would love this, and I really did. Oh, that's um, so it's, good. It's Especially gorgeous. after having not yeah, liked yeah, the yeah, first Exactly. So this is only uh, 219 pages. So, you know, some would call it a novella, although to me it's quite substantial despite its size. Mm. I actually didn't realise it was as short as it is because my edition that I read from is it's published with another book called The Ebb Tide, which I also read, which is quite a similar book set on a boat. It wasn't quite as good as Treasure Island, but they were quite a good pair, I thought. So Robert Louis Stevenson, he was such a clever man. It was such a pity. He only lived to be 44. He contracted tuberculosis quite young and he died from from TB. 44 is very young. Imagine what he would have written if he'd been around a bit longer. The story opens with a young boy named Jim Hawkins, Mm. and I just loved Jim Hawkins Mm. so much. And he says at the very beginning that he has been asked by a few gentlemen to write down the story of Treasure Island and keep nothing back but the bearings of the island, Mm. as there is still treasure to be lifted. And the tale then starts with Jim recalling a brown, salty, seafaring man arriving at the family's inn. And I'm picturing Cornwall. I'm not exactly sure where. And it becomes clear that this man who's turned up at the inn and is living there has a, a, a dark past. He's hiding from people and he, has, he brings with him this enormous big chest and it would be apparent, it appears that there's treasure in that chest that he puts in his room. 
and he says to young Jim, I'll pay you a weekly sum if you will keep a lookout and warn me if you see a man approaching the inn who has only one leg. And so, of course, after a time, the man's been staying there for a while, drinking lots of rum. There's lots of sea shanties. He's a pretty horrible character, actually. Of course, people do start coming looking for him and they start turning up at the inn, but no one with just one leg. And then after a rather terrifying incident, which really was completely terrifying, young Jim and the local doctor and the squire Mm. of the area have cause to open the captain's big chest and they find a treasure map and they immediately go and procure a ship and a crew to sail her so that they can find the treasure, as you do. As you do. (laughs) As you do when you find a treasure map. (laughs) And when I tell you what happens next could have been a 500-page novel. Oh, wow. I mean it. I mean, how on earth... Robert Louis Stevenson packed so much action into 219 pages. I do not know. Mm. This story is so good, so propulsive, so compelling that I even ordered a map (laughs) (laughs) on the internet. You've got the map. And it arrived yesterday. Oh, my God, how adorable is that map. It's the funniest thing. So, honestly, because my edition, nearly all of, I've got, as you can see, you've got... I've got lots of editions of Virginia Treasure Virginia has six copies of I've Treasure I've got all the Island. children's book ones because I collect all those editions. So I've got plenty to photograph I've, I've for got, our Instagram I've account. I've got Treasure Island Envy. I've only got two. That yes. Is, that, that, look at that. They are beautiful editions They will editions all be appearing well. on our, on our uh, Instagram account. But the Penguin English Library edition did not have a map. So I that is Googling around cool on the map. internet and found these maps. And that This place does literary maps. And I now am being sent advertisements for all the literary maps. I suspect I might end up buying one. Because, I mean, there's just nothing more charming than a treasure map. And it's got, you know, all the things down the sun, all the little places and where they were in the world. And it's just gorgeous. So I'll post a photograph of that too. And we're such visual learners these days. Yeah. The idea of of being able to, as you say, plot through where the characters were and... How divine. That I is remember gorgeous. making these at school. You know where you used to yeah. paint coffee over yes. your paper oh, and yes. burn the edges? Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> that was our education. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Nothing about the real world. <laughs> so funny. So I don't want to go into a lot of detail about the plot of Treasure Island. Um, I mean, obviously people will have seen the movie or they might have read their kids the book. I don't think I had read it at all as a child, even the children's version of it. But really, that is Mm. a joy that you should have for yourself. But I'll just say some of the things that Mm. are in it. So there's a sinister crew on the ship, many of whom were hired by the cook, Ah. who is a man with only one leg. Of course, yes. Uh, there is, is that Long John Silver? Yeah, that's yeah, Long okay. John Silver. There's a growing menace. There's a beautiful feeling of, you know, just impending mm. menace. There's a mutiny. There's lots of deaths. There's lots of salty sea dogs <laughs> and sea shanties galore. There's a lot of rum consumption. Oh, my God. Do you think a lot of the pirate and island kind of language comes from this book? Yeah. This, yeah. this book is the start of it all. It's the standard. I'm sure. it's, the uh, standard. it's the standard. Yeah. Um, there's a castaway yes. who's been marooned on an island. There are several strategic battles and repositionings, which which is where I needed the map. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. It's so good. It's so clever. And the, my favourite, favourite thing about this whole book is that the young boy, Jim, he is basically smarter than all of the adults put together and that's including Mm. the doctor and the squire and he is the hero who single-handedly saves the day on multiple occasions Um, and I do realise that he's telling the story and so there might be some degree of authorial uh, exaggeration (laughs) but I totally believe him yes it's just so delightful. Uh, so I could not put this book down I had always thought this book was just for men and boys Mm. um and apart from the brief mention of Jim's mother in the beginning, there's literally no other woman yeah. in the book. But the writing and the suspense are just so great that I devoured it and I highly recommend 
Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Fantastic. <laughs> I think I have a Ladybird children's oh, edition, which would be, I, don't, I mean, I don't know who writes the children's versions, but it would be, it would be in an edited copy. Gorgeous. But that, um, that map, I have map envy. That is so cute. The rest is history, guys. Would love to hear about your ladybird. Yes. They're always going about their ladybird books. Quite a few ladybird books. Cute. Oh. So what have you been diving into recently? Uh, well, over the kind of Christmas break, watched a, you know, caught up on a few things that would be meaning to watch. So I did watch Chris Hammer's novel Scrublands, speaking of characters with fabulous vivid names. Yes. Chris Hammer, of course, is the Australian novelist, Outback Noir, yeah, yeah. Dingo I, Noir. I, I really enjoyed it, apart from one scene, which yes. I thought was a bit ludicrous, but the yes. rest of it I thought was excellent. Yeah, I, I, I'm exactly the same. I think some of the casting was a bit clunky. Yeah. And there were, as you say, well, for me the ending yeah. was a cheesy kind of melodramatic thing that just didn't work for me at all. I think the actress that plays the detective's love interest, Mandalay Blonde, is superbly cast. I think she's absolutely brilliant. She was the standout for yeah, me. I thought she's she was brilliant. So good. Again, that sort of confident restraint, lo- yeah. loved it. Yeah. And the cinematography, do you say to cinematography in yeah. television? I don't know if you do. Yeah, it was know. absolutely beautiful. So I love that. Outback Town and all its glory or lack of glory. Yeah. We've watched... Well, I have watched all of Boy Swallows Universe. Yeah, sensational watching. Can I say I think the actor that plays August yeah. is just oh, my favourite. Superb. Really enjoyed watching that. Interestingly, Gus hadn't read Boy Swallows Universe. I oh. thought he had. And right. we started yeah, watching yeah. it. And I think we got to episode two or three and he said, no, I haven't watched it. And, and I was having I to explain. Sorry, I haven't yeah, read yeah, it. Yeah. So I was having to explain a few things to him. Which would be hard to... Yeah. yeah. And he found it a bit soap opery in the end. Yeah, okay. And I think that's because he hasn't read it. Because it's high drama. It's high drama and the sort of magic realism. Yeah. I I think if you don't know that about the book... Mm, I can imagine. You might not appreciate it, the TV series. Anyway, loved it. The last thing I want to mention, which I think is just superb, I've been listening to a podcast that came out in November last year. It's the latest in the serial... Right. podcast series, um, which is a serial podcast, New York Times, Peabody Journalism, called The Children of Rutherford County. Just very briefly, there is a video that emerges. Uh, Rutherford County, by the way, is in Tennessee in America. There's a video that emerges of some children fighting, very young children fighting, and a police officer in Rutherford County gets hold of the video and has concerns particularly has concerns about the children that are standing around watching the fight uh, and that someone's obviously videoed it. In her mind, the two children that are fighting, who are five or six, there's no discussion about the extent of the fight. It sounds to me like a bit of fisticuffs. There's no suggestion that those children would be in trouble because they're five and six, because they're not yet seven but she is concerned about the children that are standing around and that they may have some culpability. So she tracks down the child who was filmed. I don't quite know, I can't remember oh. quite how she does that. It's irrelevant to me doing this little review. She tracks down the, the, the who turns out to be a girl who is 10. And she kind of ultimately persuades the 10-year-old's parent and the 10-year-old to write down the names of all the children in the video which the 10-year-old does with a lot of reluctance. Then we move to the arrest of all these children. There's 12 of them. Good Lord. Now, I can say there's only four episodes to this podcast, so it's, you know, it's quite a neat thing to listen to. Um, Did this all happen recently or a long uh, time? A a while, maybe 2017 maybe. We're not talking the 1970s. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, my gosh. 2016 maybe, but I could have that wrong. So the the arrest episode is particularly upsetting because Officer Templeman goes to the school and orders the principal to go and get children out of classrooms and the principal is distraught, very upset, and resists and resists and resists. There are police officers in her room and she eventually agrees and she does so in tears as she's pulling certain children who are having to be told you're about to be arrested all the rest of it. And we're talking about children age 8, age 9, age 10. 
I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary. I think there's a seven-year-old. Anyway, these children are arrested. What the police officer has done is she's gone to the DA or the local, you know, justice office and they've decided that there is a charge on the statute books which is criminal responsibility for the conduct of others. So that's, we put that to one side. At the same time, there is a young lawyer, very young green lawyer, who is getting some experience at the Rutherford County Court. And he's very green. He is himself a child of youth detention. So he has great lot of sympathy for young people in detention. And, of course, that can go from anything from drug arrests, whatever. And he he has had substance abuse issues himself. And he begins to notice a pattern in this courtroom, independent of this particular case, that there are an awful lot of children who are being put in jail for periods of time. And many of them become his clients. And he has a lot of disquiet with this and he's concerned about it. He has a bit of a smoke break, a cigarette break outside, bumps into another more experienced lawyer, also somebody who's been in detention himself in years gone by, also somebody who's had substance abuse issues. And they get chatting and they begin to say, something's not right here. Yeah. And then sort of the third thread in the podcast is the female judge who presides over Rutherford County. And it is absolutely fascinating. It is a port. Well, I think they will make a TV series about this. This should be fictionalized. It's extraordinary. She is a portrait of power. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the policewoman sounds like. Well, she is as well. But this judge, she, her self possession, her perspective on herself and her power and her role. She appears on weekly on local radio and she's referred to as the mother of the county. She regularly has young, young children appear before her who she's put in jail for a week for doing something wrong. And look, don't get me wrong, some of them have stolen things, some of them have broken in. I'm not saying that they're not, they haven't done some serious things. There's also a lot of very trivial matters as well. She still puts them in jail and they, often they'll come back and she'll send them back again for another 10 days. It's an extraordinary story. And, of course, at some stage these three threads okay. collide and it's really, really worth listening to. Okay. Because, of course, we don't have a great record with children in detention well, here in Australia. Well, I was actually so going to, I was going to um, add, that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say, is that, you know, yeah. th- this isn't about yeah. um, casting stones. Mm. It's, it's about the principles so generally. Yeah. It is really oh. Really, really interesting. That sounds amazing. That's to be recommended. What about you? What have you been diving into? I've just got a podcast. I've been listening to the new podcast called The Queen's Reading Room. The Queen Camilla is a great lover of reading and she's had an Instagram account and she's done all sorts of things with reading and literature since she's stepped up her role. And... This is a new podcast, so there's only two episodes out at the time of recording. The first one, the main person who features is Sir Ian Rankin. Yes. Oh, Um, Rebus. So they've obviously just sent him a whole list of questions and then he just records his answers. It's a very interesting format. And then the second episode is Dame Joanna Lumley. Yeah. And she speaks for a long time, same format. She's got a list of questions and she's just sort of, so it's a, it sort of comes over as a monologue. I'm not That's entirely So sold. they're not being interviewed? They're not being interviewed? No. You turn it on and you think you're going to hear Queen Camilla, which I now think about and I think, no, that was never going to happen. But you no. think she's going to be a co-host or yes. have some involvement in it. But there's this very cut glass English accent um, professional who doesn't introduce herself. She doesn't say who she is. Or that I can see. I, I haven't Googled around, but I'm not aware How of who it is. fascinating. And she introduces it and then she says, we're going to hear from, you know, Sir Ian Rankin. And then it goes over to him with some music in between and then he starts talking. And what he says is fascinating. I absolutely loved both of those people. And Dame Joanna Lumley actually touches on the idea of being a bit embarrassed if you haven't read a book. And she says, just pick it up today. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's gorgeous. She's sort of giving advice to the listeners, which is quite funny. But she's really great at creating a picture in your mind of her house. Mm. It's really worth listening to someone who's very good at describing something 
verbally so that you can totally picture her, her entire house and all the books in it and everything. She's great. And then there's a few other little clips and things. I think they've sort of dug into the archives and got little bits of Camilla speaking and I don't think it works that well, to be honest. It's almost like it's what is being authorised that they can do. Yeah. And so Camilla's role in it is so minimal. I think you hear her voice for probably 2% of the time. (laughs) So are are they authors that she's chosen? Look, I'm not even sure if... That's weird. You know, I I suspect she's had a meeting with the woman who's hosting it and the producer. And And they've had a let's schedule and they've sent out a letter to all their who was on the list. And then the producer has decided this is the order. We'll start with Ian Rankin, we'll then have Joanna Lumley Mm. next week. And probably she's signed off on it. Yes. But her involvement is tiny. It's sort of like a a royal warrant for a podcast. Yeah. You have have a listen because there are little gems in there. Yes. There definitely are. Ian Rankin's bit is so interesting. Mm. Uh, He talks about giving up on a book you're not enjoying because you just won't get onto another one. Mm. And he he talks about putting one down after he's read 500 pages or something. And Joanna Lumley's is really worth reading, uh, listening to, because she talks a lot about why reading is so good and why it's important. Uh, So there are plenty of gems in there, but I think they do need to make some adjustments to the format. But, you know, I don't think they will make any, but that's what I would do if I was them because I think it's... It's got a few flaws, let's yeah. just put it that way. So, uh, Excellent. worth a listen, but let me know what you think. I will. So, that's it for us today. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our confessions about <laughs> books that we're a bit embarrassed to admit that we haven't read until now. Yes, correct. <laughs> let us know some of the books that you think you ought to have read and that you're a bit embarrassed that you haven't ever actually read. And we will be back soon with another episode. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes and we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up. Shaping up, working in, diving in, breaking up, shaping up.